Welcome to episode 102. You're hanging out with producer, writer, director, Ant Timpson, and actor-producer, Elijah Wood. You'll hear all about their insane new movie, Come to Daddy, in theaters nationwide, as well as VOD and digital as of this Friday, if you're listening to this at time of release. We get deep into their horror backgrounds, as well as recent films that have left their mark on them. We talk about what went into creating the over-the-top puzzle of mystery and misdirection that makes Come to Daddy such a visceral experience. Also, the latest with Elijah's production company, Spectrovision. Episode 102 gets going now. This is Elijah Wood. And this is Ant Timpson. When we aren't producing Blazing Beats and hanging out with Elton John, we listen to The The Boo Boo Crew. Dad, why did you ask me to come here? I don't want to discuss it. I need to know why you sent that letter. I gotta take a crap. I know what's happening. You got no idea what's happening here. I could see. Ever been in a fight? I once kicked the guy's ear off. I got this theory. Bad guys have eyes that look like razors. You have to kill him? I'm not a murderer. You just killed somebody like Metatron. Who knows? Maybe we'll end up being best friends. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio are two incredibly empowering figures in cinema and creativity in general. He is an award-winning filmmaker. He has produced some of the most adventurous and exciting genre films, including 2012's ambitious anthology that was such a treat, gathering over two dozen directors from Ty West to Adam Wingard, Angela Bettis, and more, the ABCs of death. It has since lived on to spawn two sequels. Other films include 2014's Housebound, 2015's cult phenomenon Turbo Kid, with its 22 festival wins, including Fright Fest, Sitkiss, South by Southwest. There's the unforgettable action horror comedy Deathgasm, The Greasy Strangler in 2016, and The Field Guide to Evil. In addition, he's been instrumental in providing platforms for the creation and discovery of the imaginations that will and have already fueled the future of cinema. Also joining us, a wonderful and celebrated actor and producer who has been etched into the pantheon of not only cinema, but of pop culture. From roles in some of the most famous films of all time, Richard Donner's Radio Flyer in 92, there was The Good Son, Deep Impact, The Faculty for Robert Rodriguez, the Oscar-winning Lord of the Rings series with Peter Jackson, Sin City, voiceover work for Family Guy, Happy Feet, Robot Chicken. He starred in Alex Aja's Maniac and countless other TV and film roles. In 2010, he founded SpectreVision, along with directors Daniel Noah and Josh Waller, which has been the support system behind flipping horror and genre cinema on its head. With the production of shockingly innovative offerings, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, Mandy, Daniel Isn't Real, and Color Out of Space, to name just a few. As a storyteller, he has proven to always make brave and bold choices that are bending culture and genre, whilst contributing to it regeneratively. He has become an important and active force in moving genre to new levels. The new movie is called Come to Daddy. It opens in select theaters nationwide, as well as on VOD and digital as of this Friday. 
Making his feature-length directorial debut, we welcome Ant Timpson and the star of the film, Elijah Wood. Yeah! yeah. Wow. Those intro- Can you just give us those introductions every day so we Someone got the cliff notes for that introduction? That was longer wow. than Gilbert Gottfried's introductions. Wow. Thank you so much. That was very kind. Well, yeah. thank you guys for thanks coming for in, us. and thanks for making this incredible movie. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you, yeah. So you, you liked it? Oh, yeah, deliciously <laughs> twisted, oh, to say the least. <laughs> yes, it is. Did not expect it. Yeah, <laughs> so good. But we just want to start off at the beginning and take a look at those first horror films that really impacted you guys as viewers back to when you were kids, your very first impressionable moments with horror. Wow. Mm. So I'd love to say that there was like these moments of big screen terror that, that have like burnt into my synapses, but it was actually <laughs> television. I think it's the first time you really get a taste of of true horror as a kid mm-hmm. and being tortured and, and hide, literally hiding behind the sofa kind of setup. So I think the stuff that I remember is a British series, ITV series called Escape to the Night, I think it was called. That is about, it's kind of like a riff, it was a bit like Marion Dreams where it was about a um, someone stuck in a house and these rocks with eyeballs that kept getting closer at night. And it was like, I've never forgotten that imagery. It just like haunted me for, for a long time. I must have been around five I think when I saw it first, and then the other ones were like Satan's Triangle with Doug McGlure, which is an, an incredible TV movie. But as with most nostalgia, don't go back, don't ever go back to those things that terrified you sure. as children because <laughs> right. you just you just fuck up all that gorgeous, beautiful memory of that time. So it's like it never can live up to those to those moments in your brain. So that, and then Burnt Offerings mm, yeah, was another one, Barren Blood. So a lot of the stuff that kind of was very adult that as kids we just stayed up really late. And managed to to see it, and then so yeah, I've got a, like a string of a lot of those sort of moments. Um, but yeah, those are the ones. Like those, are the Satan's Triangle definitely. I remember having nightmares for a, for a long, long time. TV was a, a factor for me as well. The thing that really stands out is John Landis's Thriller short. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember it. It wouldn't have been the premiere because I was too young. Because I think it was what eighty three. Right, and I, I would have been two, um, but they played it multiple times on MTV over oh, yeah. the years, and there was another like replay of it, and I remember being so terrified of it that I ran to the basement to hide. Oh, so the, the basement, which I was afraid yeah. of anyway, was, was a safer place than watching Thriller. But um, I also have a, a brother who's seven years older than me, so he was renting movies with his friends, and invariably they would be horror films. Um, and he would always let me see them, despite the fact that I wasn't allowed to. So it was just, you know, just don't tell mom kind of thing. But yeah, and saw, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors when I was probably six. <laughs> wow. um, a formative movie for me was um, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness, the Tim Ritter film. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Directed VHS. Absolutely. Still, to this day, love that film. A deep dive. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> the weird thing is that there's, there's, there's also films that you didn't even see at that stage that scared you because i remember sure. being a kid in, a, in the playground and they were talking about this film about a guy who knocks on doors and then you open them up and then it, they, you just get chainsawed and then you see the guy get chainsawed in half and it was texas chainsaw massacre and it was just like this thing that people were talking about oh god wait yeah. but this is early 70 what, 75 i guess or 76 and so it took a long it took a while for it to come down to new zealand but it was just this myth about the film, like how over the top it was, like real people got chainsawed 
That's so that's what sure. So it was a built. It was, like it was game built of, up to me. It's the game of years. telephone a little. Yeah, bit. Urban yeah, Legend. Yeah. It just yeah. changes and changes to the point where that that's that's the reality of the movie. Yeah, and then it pays off that. when you find when I finally saw it. I was like, uh, like that to me is still number one. Oh like, yeah, especially yeah. you have John uh, Laro quit uh, telling you in the beginning that the movie's real. And yeah. the events yeah. really happened. <laughs> <laughs> there was no internet back then. Very difficult it, movie to right? top, that's for sure. <laughs> what are those classics in in your mind that still to this day you find inform your approach? The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. still. I think if you the separate th- thing, your age, you know, from these films, and it's like just great films. You know, totally have, have the longevity and and still have the impact. And don't look and, now. And then you you start watching them on different from different layers and different levels and different different lenses um, as you get older and supposedly wiser, sometimes more senile. But you, yeah, there's just different, it's just you go through life and films mean different things to you as you go. And the great ones mean the change as long as, you know, as you change, there's a different way to approach them. So mm-hmm. yeah, those, the classics are the classics, you know, I mean, we can just trot them all out. They're all the, the, the ones that they're the classics the for a reason and they always they'll they'll be timeless i think because of that yeah i like i mean for me i like to remember the, the like the moments in the cinema like i i like people remember their first kiss which i can't even remember my first kiss but i remember my first time i was like scared in the in the cinema so it's like those sort of i can recall instantly mm-hmm. like um times in cinema reacting to films and things and seeing the um um, Jason jump out at Friday the 13th at the first screening on the first day like that you, you can never recover from those sort of moments mm. they're just like they're just part of your DNA for life if you're a, if you're a horror fan recently have there been any experiences in the cinema that have had that impact on you it's hard in the cinema to get that collective the last time I had a really mm. sort of a collective moment with an audience where it was like ooh holy Jesus like you could feel it like feel the whole room freaking out was the very first screening north american screening of uh ringu mm. oh yeah and we saw that at the imperial cinema in, at fantasia in 99 i think it was wow. and that, that was the last time where i literally which is so cool it was a pg movie as well like it's such a rare occurrence and so that was yeah that kind of that's kind of like just the audience the amount of dread and people were freaking out at that and it's hard to explain because j-horror suddenly became a a thing it It was just an explosion and you just got um we got swamped from from every angle but that was kind of like the a lot of people's first experience of of that style of filmmaking and um yeah oh that must have been electric it was was really 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 great and then there's yeah there's like i guess the only time i get really get scared now is like watching things late at night by myself which sucks because it's a small screen and it's not it's not a service (laughs) to the filmmakers but that's probably the best way to 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 get scared out of your wits is by yeah clearing There's, everyone out of the house. It's hard to get scared too now. I think you know as a as a seasoned horror viewer, it's difficult to be surprised and shocked. I think you can still get that in an audience where the audience there's a collective gas, there's a collective experience where people are are surprised together that can kind of create something. I felt that with Hereditary, the, the yeah. midnight screening at Sundance when mm. everyone saw that for the first time. That was almost traumatic. Like, you know, yeah. it, was, it was really, it, not so much scary, traumatic and, and difficult to experience because it was ultimately just fam, family trauma and uncomfortable. And so, yeah, that was the last time I'd had that in a theater, I think. I remember being really affected by uh, Blair Witch Project too, and I watched it on a VHS Oh, or, it may, or it may have been a DVD copy, but it was, you know, 
we had we had appropriately a, watched on a, sure. on a small television <laughs> exactly and 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 at the time i think i i was told that it might be real like i think yeah. i was believing the mythology a little bit and it that freaked me out i saw it yeah i showed it to um i got an early like a legal screener <laughs> um, so it hadn't been released or anything but i remember taking i did a halloween party where i spray i said meet meet at my house and follow the the stick figure <laughs> And then I then I drove down the freeway and I was like sprayed that stick figure all the way, <gasps> fluoro paint all the way out to like a remote forest. Oh my god! Set up a projector into the trees. Ant. And um, <laughs> and then and then at like at ten thirty and when it was pitch black and everything, we did, everyone just sort of sat in this forest. And then and then suddenly this image appeared in the trees. And then we and then while the film was and I we stuffed up the start of it so the actual beginning bit where it talks about the the. Set up, yeah. There's none of that. It was just started with the with the video footage. So there was no text at the start. Ooh, you know, that's so, kind of yeah, better actually. Kind of even weirder. So and then we um and then we were like hiding in the trees and things. So and we're pushing these huge. It was a very similar forest to the one in the film. And then we we're pushing these trees over at certain moments in the um during the screening. And it was oh like one of those God. amazing <laughs> experiential oh, moments. Awesome. So yeah, people still t- yeah they, the people there. Like I think we ended up. I thought like 12 people were going to turn up and then friend, people told people and then it was like 100 people. Wow. And then the ranger turned up and said, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Does anyone have a permit for this? And, I, and, and, and then but, but luckily he was like a horror nut and he was like, because um, they'd been shooting a Xena or something okay. out there. And um, not that that's a horror thing, but. <laughs> An immersive <laughs> but, uh, he, Blair Witch He let experience. us off. He let us off. That's so, yeah, that's that's so I remember cool. uh, another big experience in the theater and this is also more recent was the first paranormal activity yes Yes. (laughs) because there was so much mystery around the film and they they were doing that thing where they were rolling out and only doing midnights across the country yeah Yeah. had to like opt in to see it and like there were limited tickets and limited showings and i was in new york at the time and and all that you saw was there was a website and a few videos of people's reactions right the trailer was just reaction they just built this mystique around the film and i was like man this thing seems so scary and it fucking was like yeah, yeah. that was an amazing experience. It was a midnight screening in like Midtown Manhattan, and it was electric, what, totally electric. What about all the festivals that turned their film down? Right, it was like Screamfest. I think was the one who who launched it. Was it yes. Screamfest? Or yeah, they were the first ones who played it publicly, and everybody then, else turned it down. And my friend who ended up Mark Gooder, who's like a, a great acquisitions guy, he ended up he bought it for Australasia and down under he was working for Icon. And then, because then DreamWorks got involved and then it got held up because they wanted to turn it into this huge thing. But right. he, he, so he had to wait two years or something before he could actually play the film. But he was, wow. he was right in there at the very start as well. And um, yeah, it was like some of those ones just, that just slip through the gaps, man. Yeah. And people just don't see the potential in them. Yeah. And that's an interesting movie because now that brings horror home. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like, well, the woods are, you know, fake. Yeah. And it's okay. But now you're thinking about, well, now I'm in my house. Yep. So when you go we, home after seeing that movie and right. you're, you're in your bedroom, right. you're thinking yeah. about what's happening exactly, in their bedroom. Exactly. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yep, yep. Yeah. Have either one of you had a paranormal experience? Uh, Ouija yeah. board stuff. Oh, you, you had the, um, at the Overlook. The, the Stanley Film Festival. Yeah. yeah. That's a good story. Would you do a you, seance at the Stanley? There's a whole podcast on it. <laughs> yeah, we, we did a um, yeah, we just played the, with the Ouija board. We were all there at the at the Stanley Hotel for the Stanley Film Festival. The last year, I think they ran the Stanley Film Festival there. Um, now it's the Overlook out of uh, New Orleans. But um, yeah, we were just it's a very haunted hotel, and we thought this is a what a great opportunity to use the Ouija board and see if we can conjure anything. And we did. I mean, there was a a spirit of a little girl that claims that she 
drowned um, in a nearby lake and potentially at the hands of her parents. And then she gave us a number and we were like, maybe that's a room number. And, and then it sort of went silent. And so we're like, well, let's go check that room. And we went up a floor, I think it was. And there was a couple in the middle of the hallway that looked traumatized. Like they had just seen something. They were really freaked out freshly, like something had just happened. We were like, what, what's going on? And they were like, we just saw the, the ghost. We just saw this, a spirit or something down the hall of, of like a little child. We're like, what? Where? And they pointed to where it was. And it was adjacent to the room number that we were told to go to on the Ouija board. That's so oh, creepy. Wow. Yeah. It was pretty wild. Like undeniable, yeah. you know. That's insane. That's wild. Yeah. Well, let's get into Come to Daddy in the time where you guys first met. I mean, leading up to you guys uh, co-produced, obviously, the, the Greasy Strangler. Leading up to that time, how did you guys kick it off? We met in Austin through Tim, it would have been. I can't remember if it was Fantastic Fest or it was South By. Yeah, it was one of those. One of those. <laughs> they it tend was to bleed together was, a little bit. It was such a momentous occasion that both of us remember <laughs> the exact moment. I think it was fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, I was probably hanging out at, at, at Tim League's house, mm-hmm. I think, at one of the sort of functions that they, that they have there. And then kind of talking about the Rings experience, I guess. Yeah, in New Zealand. In yeah. New Zealand. And, and then just running into each other from that point on in Austin. Because I used to go to Austin every year since 94, basically. So I've been going there. You were doing the road show and did, yeah, did the road shows and yeah, it was just a second home for me. Really, I just fell in love with that city and just kept going back and back and got to know Tim League really early on. Of like, see, I want to say second year of the Alamo when it was just the Colorado screen, mm. and just got on like a house on fire because of the showmanship that side of it. And then, and then Elijah being involved. Weren't you on the board of no? Weren't you part of that very early Fantastic Fest setup, or were you? They asked. You to do anything? No, I was just around a lot. Yeah, it was just my brother lived there at the time that I started going to Fantastic Fest, and then just organically, you know, met Tim through attending, and ended up having a lot of mutual friends. It wasn't it wasn't involved in any official capacity then. Right now you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and then it was just yeah. I don't know how it, it crossed the line from just like hanging out and chatting about movies and everything and then having mutual friends mm. and then escalating into, yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, Greasy just came about because I think I just sent the script to Elijah. It wasn't like we had a previous working history of working on any projects. It was Mm-mm. just like having fun. And then that was the sort of key we'd, um, you knew the filmmaker as well mm-hmm. or his work, Jim mm-hmm. Hosking. Jim Hosking, yeah. And he was a big fan. And also Jim's world was like with, with Toby Harvard, the writer. And so, yeah, you just fell in love with Greasy, and that's when things sort of kicked off in a big way. And that was such a fun project to work on, just truly unique. Yeah, and it was made for so little money that we could just do whatever the hell we wanted to do. Yeah. Jim could make the movie that he wanted to make. Yeah, there's no... That, without any rules. That film would not survive a um, by committee. No, no <laughs> not at all. So then the process of you going, uh, from, again, stepping from producer to director in this project that has come across your lap. Yeah. Talk about how that transition happened. Well, there's a lot of parallels. I mean, you have to be the driving force a lot of the time behind projects, whether you're the producer or the director. It's like, it's hard. Like you, if you don't keep pushing it and driving and have this uh, and like have a goal, it's just not going to, it's not going to pay off unless you're Mm -hmm. 
you know some wonderkin that everyone's fawning all over it's it's still a hard graph so a lot of that that sort of focus on detail of producing is instantly transferable into directing as well i think so it, it, to me it wasn't like it, it didn't feel the only thing i i had was just the like the anticipation of so long between like starting to make shorts as a youngster and having fun and and then suddenly all this pressure on first feature first feature and what you know and not wanting to balls it up that that became a sort of a huge issue that I, I had to mentally sort of overcome because as a producer, you can always just blame the director at the end of the day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I just, I ended up, um, yeah, that was, that was the sort of hill I had to climb mentally. Based on a true story, or at least your experience is kind of how the script, st- the idea of the script came together. Is that kind correct? of like the, yeah, like the, the genesis and inspiration came out of, of a, like a traumatic event for me, like the passing of my dad, which was sort of like happened right in front of me and was like shocking. And mm. and then like the history I have with my family is like we've used humor and gallows humor a lot of the time to get to get over horrible things. I think it's a, like a, a sort of a natural way that a, a lot of people cope as a coping mechanism to to laugh about things, no matter how hideous <laughs> reality is. So. Um, having that mentality just, and then, you know, taking that idea, the skeleton of the idea to Toby, the writer, and then just working with it and, um, and then sort of fleshing that out to a fully finished script, um, was, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was a process that he came back really fast with the first draft based on the structure. And then from then it was maybe, you know, few, few months. So it was fast. Wow. Yeah. And then it just, then it was just fine tuning, fine tuning after that. Yeah, when Elijah saw it, it don't it probably didn't change at all after you saw it. Maybe a little, kind of a little. Yeah. I mean, I think it changed due to the location. Like yeah, some of the modifications that you made to yeah. to fit where we were shooting, things like that. But no, I mean the basic, the basic structure and you know the layout of the film is pretty much unchanged. Yeah, we both love the way um, Toby writes the mm-hmm. di- the way he's you know instantly characters are definable. You can hear the voices and yeah. And then I had a great session with Toby. Like we used to just operate through online. You know, the whole process was just emails back and forth, bouncing and Google Docs. And so when we when I hung out in London, we just we spent a whole day just in a hotel, like twelve hour session, and working on this other thing they were doing. And it was just fun because you it, like literally having him there, like speaking as the characters. It would start to. I could see I could see how everything just flows really well. Right. And then so then we were both into it, bouncing and. I just I was just throwing ideas, and he was just developing as it goes. And I was like, "Oh, this is how it, you should do it in the room with people. This is ridiculous doing it <laughs> via email. Oh, yeah. No wonder it takes <laughs> takes so long." But yeah, oh my god, yeah, yeah infinitely. Was, more but when time. you live in polar opposites of the of the globe, it's pretty tough. hard to get yeah. in the same room. <laughs> you can't even Skype. Like you're twelve. You're literally, I'm going to sleep, and he's waking. Yeah, up. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, the movie "Come to Daddy" is such a fresh idea. It starts to play off as is the drama. You know, we're not sure where it's going to go. We yeah, can't, like, have an idea. You're like, okay. And then it gets fucking crazy. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, I didn't see this coming at all. What I love about it, and what I loved about the script is that it, the beginning of the film is a, is really, a, a it, it's a drama and it plays out right. that way. And the emotion of, of what Norval is going through with his father is real. Yeah. And then in isolation, what he's going through, and then it takes these twists and turns right. that give you a little bit of a break from that. And it's it's often surprising where it goes from there, but... It really is an amalgam of all these things that are that are tonally balanced so well. And that's a difficult thing. You know, obviously a lot of that came in the edit 
and sound design and score. But what I love about the film is that it, it, each of those elements are true to their individual elements. And, and it, you know, it's not nothing is played for laughs or played to be ridiculous. It's all played straight. And it's just a, a pretty windy, intense journey that these characters yeah. go on. Yeah, but the you writing know, is so good. Also, it really is that when the humor pops in here and there, it's like you laugh because you're like, "Fuck, that was funny." Yeah, but it's dark, but it's funny. The movie really does play off like um, like a dark ride, or yeah. you know, like a haunted house where you're in the ride and you're swiveling it to one thing, and we're focusing on that. No, no idea of what's coming around the corner. Yeah, and that ride that you take us on is is joyous. It is so yeah. cool. Now, in terms of the prep work, Elijah on bringing Norval to life in a film that relies so much on these incredible strong characters like mm. Stephen McCaddy, who plays Norval's father, or Michael Smiley, who's hilarious. When you got to set and were put in into the situations how much of what we see on screen is less sort of what you prepared for but more reactionary to the strong performances that you kind of found yourself entangled in in the moment a little bit of both yeah. i think you know the mccaddy relationship that norval has like working opposite him was reactionary uh but it's oh, wow. reactionary for norval as well so that was perfect for me i mean mccaddy is 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 incredible and and intimidating and also super game and delightful but that provided me with exactly what norval was going through which is not quite knowing where he stands and and always being slightly on his back foot so that that dynamic was was real in the sense of what mccaddy was bringing and and i i was sort of reacting to that but we were really lucky we were you know we we shot the first two-thirds of the film we were in that house and so we were actually able to, to a certain degree, shoot in sequence. And okay. so a lot of the kind of initial character that you meet of Norval and then what he what happens to him and transpires, we kind of did in, in sequence. Yeah. So I had the luxury of being able to like play those things out in real time and work through those character moments as he's then reacting to everything that happens to be able to build on the foundation for then him to to sort of have to then react to the wild situations as they become you know yeah. did you guys ever improvise or go off script no not really no i mean it's pretty the words are pretty specific the way it's written it was good i mean in some ways it's probably the worst thing to say as a director but um in some ways probably it was kind of cool that we didn't have any rehearsal time at all in a way that you it was just mccaddy just turning up yeah. and just jumping in because of that kind of awkwardness mm-hmm. and and me being super intimidated by him, and <laughs> <laughs> and me, t- and me too. He was, he was scary. He was, yeah. he was really. See, it was actually kind of triggering. Like I, <laughs> you know, I've grew grow up around alcoholism, yeah. and to see that was actually very triggering. It's all the things that you are afraid growing yeah. up as a kid. Yeah. You know? He knew the guy. He knew what he needed to do. Like he, um, he's great. I mean, once you get like um, past the fear of talking to him, he, um, <laughs> he, he he's a pretty amazing good dude. He's got a he great, really is, he's yeah. just a good storyteller and has been and done everything. I mean, he's been working for, I don't know, 50 years you know, in the incredible. business. So wow. He's worked with everybody. He's mm-hmm. very convincing. Um, but he's not, he's not a garrulous dude. Like he, he's a very quiet, stoic character. Wow. And, and so he's just not Hollywood, man. He's just so, he's the antithesis of it really. Doesn't so. he live part time in a cabin that he built it's like a as ranch. well? Yeah. yeah. He's got, um, yeah, he's in the um, middle of nowhere. <laughs> He's yes. cool. He likes full, full method actor right there. Right. He's so he's so great and Smiley. Oh man, <laughs> Smiley was fantastic. Yeah, and brought such a wonderful energy and he was so fucking funny. Yeah, dude, so funny. Yeah, oh my god, excrement. 
and he, and he brought those he, teeth. He, he those, put, those, that yeah, teeth, he turned up his own false teeth. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. He goes, what do you think of these? <laughs> he'd just been in was, Ireland, was it, working on something? Or, like, yeah. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, and he just... Um, he had these teeth made for another thing. It was a period and, piece, right? Yeah. yeah, and he had bunged up teeth. They were just like, yeah, it's perfect. But, he actually looked a lot like the... I made this... Um, amalgam of like what smiley should look like this character just like crazy um me with bad photoshop skills of like the wig and the shirt and, <laughs> and everything and when he was finally done it was like he's ex- he was exactly like the photoshop mock-up it was pretty incredible <laughs> yeah. yeah there were some crazy fight scenes yeah. and i'm not gonna give anything away but i swear someone had to have gotten hurt on that set I did <laughs> not, dur- not during a fight scene. We both did the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, so the, the house is perched on these rocks and we were filming amongst those rocks a bit. He was the first one. And then I was the second. He rolled his ankle oh. and broke it. <gasps> oh, shit. In the first week. It was yeah. within the first week. Yeah. First, yeah. The first week. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and he had a, he had a brace and, and like a, a moon boot on for a bit. And then didn't end up getting an X-ray until you went back to New Zealand, yeah. to where that's when you learned you'd broken it. I did. I did the classic, um, unbelievable. Man. I went back to like uh, W.D. Griffith and 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 directed with a megaphone. Yeah. For a period, I was sitting in my on my fat ass. So oh, God, it, was it was like it was good. Yeah, oh, it was pretty fun. Yeah, but so no, during the fight sequence, it was we had a great stunt guy, and um, and I knew I really wanted it, it, it like to cover it in a certain way, and they were really game, and they, we did a previs and. And I saw that and I was like, okay, let's tweak it there. And the DP, Dan, was, we had talked about a lot about how we wanted to do it. And, and Elijah's so game, like crazy game. Like we'd have to pull him back from wanting to do, it'd be tossed around the room like a rag doll. So, um, yeah, so it was like, Elijah, do you mind if we throw you against the roof and bend your head that way? He's like, yeah, let's do it. And so, and just, um, I, was, I was really super happy with the fight scene. I think it's, uh, it came out, came out really, really well. Pretty much how I wanted it. So, which is rare for things to work out perfectly. <laughs> There's also this amazing scene with the conversation between Norval and his dad, where they talk about Elton John. And, oh my and, god, uh, I laugh my ass off. Tell us about yeah. filming that scene and what went into trying to get it just right because the beats are so perfect on it. It's like a masterful dance. Was that the last scene we'd shot with McCaddy with dialogue? I think it was. It was, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he may have done some other scenes after that, but nothing with dialogue. Yeah, then he went away for a while. Yeah. And he, um, but yeah, no, you guys just now, I mean, you just, it was just the guy, the audio guys who came up from New Zealand for the film, we had like 12 Kiwis come up to work on it in Canada. Yeah. They, it felt um, like, it felt like returning home for me. Yeah. Cause you knew <laughs> I Elijah did, I did. had worked from, with, from them, from rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the Soundies, they, they've, they've seen everything, you know, and so they're not impressed by effects and all the, all the carnage and all that sort of stuff. But the, that's that sequence. Like I remember the sound guy took me aside and it was just like, you guys, that, that's it. That's what the, that's what we're here for. <laughs> that's, that's filmmaking. <laughs> and and um, so, yeah, oh, I, I kind of knew that uh, those guys had pulled it off, pulled off something really special. That was a special scene. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's so good. We were just talking about this the other day, that humor is such a great tool to create an instant connection between the audience and a character. Yeah. And as soon as a character makes you laugh, especially, you lock onto them and they become real and you follow their journey because mm. they made you feel something. Then the audience is in. How important is the element of humor for you guys in storytelling? Well, especially when you're dealing with something as potentially heavy, you know, heavy as this and dark 
I think it's important to give your audience a little breather. <laughs> right. Um, otherwise, I think it could come across as too intense or maudlin or I don't know. It's you run the risk of exhausting people if you don't have any levity. So I think, you know, in the right sort of films, this being a really good example of that, levity is important. You need to give people a little bit of a break to kind of go, oh, OK, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. You know, it's intense, but I can I can I can laugh, too. It, yeah, and look, it's so um, things get pushed so far that I think it would just be it would be we just border into the ridiculousness, you know. So when you were talking yeah. about a ride, that was always the intention is for it to be Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, pretty much. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it was that was the yeah, and so humor was. I mean, for me, it was a comedy. It was a dark comedy more than than anything. So I just felt like you have to be super careful. And and, and one of the things we always talked about was like not us being aware. That we're sort of like winking about it and, and, and you know, um, the audience has to sort of, yeah, I love the fact that people, the whole thing is like they don't expect where it goes because of the setups. Mm. And so not that we're subverting anything. I just think it's it's knowing how far you can go before it derails and, and becomes farcical. And I mean, some audiences, some people aren't going to connect because we do tra- take those risks and we... It's a bit of a high wire act, and um, some people I, I know for a fact love the first half like way more than the second half mm-hmm. because it's a very different film. And the, the others are like, oh, it's quite slow at the beginning, and it's a slow burn. And then I really love it when it goes crazy and yeah. and off the rails. But um, and then there's the then there's the sweet spot, which is the people who just dig the whole ride right throughout the whole thing. And yeah. that's who you, that's who we make it. I made it for for me, you know. So in <laughs> the day, yeah. it's like. That's the that's the the ride I wanted to go on. So. Yeah, same. Did you guys keep anything from the film, like props? Yeah, yeah. Who's got the gold phone? Of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We thought like, I, I was on the set, and I was like, "What can I sell, Trevor?" <laughs> after this film. Uh, no, I kept. Um, there was something really, really, really um, kind of spooky because you mentioned oh, spooky encounters yeah. before, uh, which I had a couple of. That's another podcast, but um. I on the very uh, the, I said we I want a chess set just for the very heavy metaphor of this chess game going on between right. between the father and son and so um, production team went out and I they came back and I said just make it an interesting set you know not not something boring and they came back with a set and I was like oh, I've I freaked out I was like holy I was like well, where'd you find this and uh, it was exactly the same set that my dad had bought me like when I was really young like eight wow. years old and with like this sort of like carved stone figures and it was like i'd never seen one ever since then that looked like it and it's was, so unique there's yeah. no world in which you would just go <laughs> that's it's bizarre. Not, nothing standard about it at all no yeah you like could, it, it looks like it was a one-off not yeah, something that was mass produced because yes. it was like it was like um marble and stones yes. yeah especially when it's set up there and you know the light coming through the windows hits it and it kind of gives that glow, and you're kind of yeah, like, yeah. you know, okay, yeah, because you can, yeah, light comes through some of the pieces and things. So yeah. that was, um, so that was kind of freaky. And I thought that, oh, that's nice. That's like, that's you know, if I wanted to, uh, if I wasn't such a skeptic, even though Bigfoot is real, um, I was thinking, like, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, that's Dad looking down <laughs> on, the, on the whole thing, and it's a good sign, it's a good omen. Let's look into the future a little bit. I know, and I've heard that you might be producing a sequel to Turbo Kid. Well, look, that that's been a long time coming. And so there's a script for Turbo Kid nice. um, 2. It's even got a title. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't, yeah, let's just, I, we want to make it. That's all I can say. And I know the team, the RKSS teams really want to make it. So it's, um, it's really just a case of finding, finding the, the bucks because it's way more ambitious. 
It's kind of like the Road Warrior step up from Mad Max. Wow! To, um, oh, to oh, geez, the so next. exciting. So it's kind of that that sort of ambition, uh, which is you need a little bit more money than we had for the first film wow. to do that. Sure. They, yeah. yeah, and they want to make that a dream project. You know, That's so, so rad. And then Elijah, we just uh, we ended up seeing Color Out of Space. Oh, great! Oh, so good. Oh, yeah. Loved it. Oh, Loved so it. fun. Oh, yeah. thank you. Seriously, amazing. Yeah, it was an honor to get to to work with Richard on that. Did you get to? Did you hang out on set when they were? I did a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, nice. well, yeah. It was shot in um, Sintra in Portugal, That's just right. outside of um, Lisbon. So yeah, I was there for about a week. But it was just a joy to see him back on set and and for him to be in the environment that he's desperately wanted to be for. A long time, and you know he was super traumatized after that experience on Moreau, and it, it has taken a long time. And I, I it's he's totally revitalized now. It's amazing, it really <sighs> so is incredible. great to see. Now, the practical effects on that movie are just fucking yeah, and level. Dude, the, the VFX are great too. Yes, and that was all yeah. out of a team in Lisbon called uh, User T Thirty Eight. They're wow. incredible. That work was so amazing and done really fast. They were great. Wow. Now, I know you've done interviews where you said you aren't necessarily a fan of remakes, but are interested in approaching things from a completely different perspective like you did in Alex Aja's Maniac and yep. things like that. We've all read articles where you've said through Spectavision, you guys have been in touch with rights holders in the Elm Street franchise right, at yeah. some point. <laughs> now, if that happened... What are the kinds of things you'd like to do with that franchise? Is that still an interest? It is an interest. I mean, God, you know, when you've got any opportunity to get a hold of a classic franchise like that and revitalize it and do something different with it is pretty exciting. I don't know if the rights are actually available. I think someone sort of jumped the gun online and sure. made it seem like there were chats and, mm -hmm. and we've done our due diligence and... and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with it. But uh, look, I think you can't just reboot it. You can't tell the same story over again. It's already been done. You can't, you know, do an origin story with Freddy Krueger again. That's already been done twice. You have to let, I think you almost have to let Freddy go and, and move into a different direction. I think you bring Freddy along for the ride initially, but you, you do have to, you have to go somewhere else with it because I think it's such well-trodden ground. I don't know. Three words. It's, would you consider bringing uh, Robert Freddy Engel in space? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> three, three words. What? Freddy in space. Freddy in space. <laughs> By the way, Jason X is a, a favorite of mine. So oh, that movie is a great movie. So great deaths. Ridiculous. I love it's it so fun. much. It's yeah. a lot of fun. If if it were possible to make it, would you consider bringing Robert Englund back for one more time? I think he has to be. Yeah. I think you have to. To honor to honor that series, to honor that character, to honor Craven. I think you have to do that. And, like the, and then you can express beyond that. Whatever whatever that is, I don't know. But right. but yeah, I think you have to. One last film. The all yeah, the, He the, said he wants to do one last yeah, one he as did. well. He, he did. does. Yeah, you can't just have him as the you're all doomed guy. No. Yeah. And then Mike Flanagan keeps saying he wants to direct one, so uh, I know. Could, could be good. I, know. Could be good. Be I love what I love what Fran Flanagan's doing. I still haven't seen Doctor Sleep. Oh, really? So good. No, no, it's good, man. I'm Gotta jealous you haven't seen it yet because you get to experience it for the first time. Yeah. So good. Yeah, especially the director's cut just came out. Yes, right. Oh right. Yeah. yeah. So that's got some good stuff, man. I've seen the intro. Because when we, we we did um an episode of Visitations with him on yeah. our podcast and uh he was in the edit on the film, so he was like, dude. Do you want to see some some footage? Oh, <laughs> we watched so we watched the opening like ten minutes. Wow, uh, cool. which was pretty incredible because we were like we didn't know what he was doing with it. We we're like, oh fuck, he's going back yeah. to Kubrick's Shining. 
bold. It was awesome. <laughs> That's so fun. Yeah, so that was all I've seen. I want to well, see the rest of it. Speaking of that podcast, are you guys going to do, uh, is there a season two? We of- are super keen to do a second season. You know, with the first one, well, it came together fast and then it came together slow because it was also about trying to, to work around people's availability and people that were passing through either people that lived in LA or passing through. But we have a giant list of people that we want to chat with. So yeah, we're, we're fully planning on it. Oh, so excited. It was a real joy. And to end with Guillermo was just a oh, real yeah. joy. Oh, great. Oh two, two parter yeah. of that yeah. one. It was at Bleak House. I know. That's awesome, he was so man. generous with his time. It was amazing. Wow. That's awesome. Guys. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Come to Daddy opens in select theaters nationwide as well yes. as on VOD and digital as of this Friday. Aunt and Elijah, thank you guys yeah. so much for being here. Thank that was you. incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, guys. What an honor. That was a Boo Crew podcast, episode 102. Special thanks to our guests, Aunt Timpson and Elijah Wood. Follow at Aunt Timpson on Twitter and Instagram, at Elijah Wood on Twitter, and see Come to Daddy in theaters nationwide, VOD and digital on Friday if you're listening to this at time of release. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5 Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, or disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.